This is what people saw in 1964 in the Crawdaddy Club in London that made them all want to start rock and roll bands. This is what happens at midnight when Keith Richards sort of finds the perfect groove and Mick Jagger sort of stops dancing and just starts being a front man and a rock and roll singer. They're the greatest bar band in the world and nobody ever sees it because they see him in these huge arenas where everything is diffuse and everything's far away. Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast that shares stories about music from all over the world and explores a musical planet. Thanks for joining me today. Think about your all-time favorite musician, someone you've been following ever since you were very young, and someone who, after all these years, you still love and whose music touches you like no one else's. Now imagine being invited into that person's world, watching them rehearse behind closed doors, spending time with them, sharing drinks on their plane, watching their concerts from the side of the stage. My guest today had the rare chance to live out this teenage fantasy. Today, Rich Cohen is an award-winning author and contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone magazines. But in the early 90s, he was a young music journalist, blessed with the opportunity of a lifetime to spend several weeks covering a band he's loved since childhood, the Rolling Stones, spending time with them as they rehearsed and prepared for a world tour. Rich Cohen has authored around 10 books, including the widely lauded The Fish That Ate the Whale. He is also the co-creator of Vinyl, the HBO series directed by Martin Scorsese. In today's episode of Travels and Music, Rich and I have an in-depth discussion about his new book, The Sun and the Moon and the Rolling Stones, which provides a gripping overview of the band's history, as well as an intimate personal history of his love for the band and his personal encounters with Jagger, Richards, and company. And aside from this backstage pass through Stone's history, Rich and I also talk about tracing the band's travels around the world, the nature of fame, the deterioration of Mick and Keith's friendship, incurring the wrath of Mick Jagger's publicist, and what makes the Stones, in his view, the greatest rock and roll band of all time. So sit back, pour yourself a finger or two of Jack Daniels, and enjoy sitting in on my discussion with the author of The Sun and the Moon and the Rolling Stones, Mr. Rich Cohen. First thing I'll say is is I, first off I love the book. It's one of the oh, it's really one of the finest music books I've read in a while. And I'm a Beatles guy, and uh-huh. you're you're obviously a Stones guy. Um, and so I I did take exception to uh, to some of the things you said uh, at, at certain <laughs> points. But I really came away from the book with a real a, a new appreciation for the Stones um, in a way that I I didn't quite uh, grasp before. I've always loved the Stones, but I but I feel like I get them in a new way. Um, That's great. Yeah, but but first off, I'd like to know. You talk about this a little in the book, but I'd, I'd like to know more. Like, what what do you think it was that initially drew you to the Stones as as a boy, listening to your brother's records? Um, how did they make you feel? Well, they they seemed like you know I was a little brother, and I wasn't allowed to. I felt like I wasn't allowed to do anything, you know, and I was protected kind of. 
And the Rolling Stones are sort of everything adult and dangerous and being hidden from me. You know, and that's what the Beatles didn't have. I mean, that's one of the things that so there was, you know, the big part of the Stones was sex and drugs and all the kind of stuff you sensed growing up in the suburbs of Chicago that were going on downtown that were right there, but you couldn't get at, you know. So I think that's what they represented to me. That First of all, I love the music, of course, but also the music represented something adult and dirty and fun. And. So my, my, my next question, skipping ahead something like 20 years or whatever, um, and you talk about this in the book, but I'd, again, I'd like to know more. So you cover them for Rolling Stones when you're in your 20s, um, when you they're preparing for a tour in, in Toronto. And this is something, as someone who writes about music and who's been fortunate enough to, to interview some people I really admire, this is something I want to ask you more as a writer than anything. Like, how do you deal with with, with interviewing people who you have such great admiration for their work and their work has meant so much to you. How do you strike the balance between, you know, staying somewhat objective and covering your subjects uh, objectively insofar as possible, um, balancing that with, with being a fan, I guess. And I, I, in, a, in a nutshell, I guess, I'm just, like, how did it feel on the plane going to Toronto as a 20-year-old when you're, you're about to cover your favorite band? It felt exciting, you know, but it depends on what kind of person you are. Look, I'm somebody for whatever reason, who's focused on more on not fucking up than anything else in a way. (laughs) And, you know, it was a big, a big opportunity for me as a writer. And I was aware of the fact that the Rolling Stones were not just an important band, but they were especially important to Rolling Stone magazine uh, and to Jan Wenner, who owned Rolling Stone and sent me on this assignment. So I was so focused on, you know, sort of getting ahead in my career and doing a good job that that almost outweighed the fan part of me. You know what I mean? Hmm. And I kind of shut that down. And, um, you know, it's very important to me at that time not to seem like a creepy, stalky fan. (laughs) Sure. I think I was able to sort of shut it to shut it down. And I did have the advantage, I think. I think it was an advantage. I haven't talked about it, but when I was a kid, my father was on the fringes of, you know, various celebrity situations. And I was around some people that seemed to me to be a big deal when I was a kid. And I got used to sort of being cool and not embarrassing my father or my older brother. And that would be my father was sort of vaguely involved in sports. So I got to meet like I'm right now I'm looking at a picture of me when I'm about eight. It's on my desk of me and Bill Buckner. Oh, wow. Bill Buckner, I don't know if I mean, a lot, of, but he was the Cubs first baseman, later went to the Red Sox, and he was a huge deal in Chicago. And to sort of meet him and have to be cool around him, it was sort of like training. And then later on, I worked as a Larry and the Larry King show, sort of greeting the people that came in to be on a show in Washington, D.C. And that was people like, you know, Bruce Willis, who made Die Hard that summer, and Gary Shandling, and um, Jimmy Carter was a guest. And I sort of felt like, it sounds stupid, but that sort of is it's like training to sort of be cool and don't act like a lunatic. And this thing can continue rather than just end, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think I do. Yeah. Um, it's like going on a first date and not being a total asshole about it, you know, <laughs> and not saying, you know, it's a great first date, but there will never be a second. You're sort of in for the long haul. And to be in for the long haul, you got to kind of not act like you're, you know, just there for the excitement of meeting one of your heroes. Sure, just just being normal around them. Being normal, right? And, and and remembering that these basically are people, 
Yeah. You know, I guess that's the main thing that are going through all the same stuff that you're going through and they have a version of the same brain, the same fears and the same neuroses that you have. And and that's good for writing, too, which is like to try to make these people into people instead of just into pop stars, because there is, you know, there are the two things. There is the sort of image and then there's the real person. And if you can try to deal with the real person and not the image, you'll you'll do better in an interview and you'll do better writing the story. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that's always stuck with me is I was interviewing the Irish singer-songwriter Glenn Hansard, um, and and he said something about meeting his idols, like meeting Van Morrison and Dylan and Leonard Cohen. Uh, and he said something to the effect, you know, everyone's got to take a shit in the morning. And for whatever right. reason, like in a really pithy way, it's like, oh yeah, you know. And and that's it's always stuck with me. It's it's uh, yeah, it's grounding in a way. And you can tell, you know, sometimes you meet people who are famous because I also do like a lot of celebrity profiles and stuff. And there's people that you just connect to on a very human level, you know, and it's just because that's how they are and that's the mood that they're in. And if that happens and you have no, pro then that, you have no problem. You know, right. it's the people who, you know, to situations reporters get in and I have, I don't think I've ever done it, but I know people have done it where you have the thing where you go sit in a room with somebody that does interview after interview or something like that. And there you just, it's not possible. But with the Rolling Stones, for example, I, that first time I was with them for so long, I was with them for weeks in a situation where it was just them and their entourage and me. And at a certain point that you have to, like you said, take a shit in the morning, you have to just be like a normal person because you can't have the sort of thing up 24 hours a day. And you sort of just inevitably connect with them on a human level. Yeah. I mean, uh another tangent but i just i can't like can you imagine how many people mick jagger has met and shook hands with in his lifetime or keith or any of the rest of them like there's a there must be a part of you that has your has has to have your guard up at least you know i, I would say probably most of the time maybe i'm wrong but it's just I, I can't imagine that bombardment with constantly meeting people and people who are freaked out to be meeting you you know day in day right i i Definitely. It's like one of those things like, you know, you can enjoy the summer sky without thinking about how many stars there actually are and how small you are, right. you know, speaking yourself out. It's sort of like and I'm always available to have my heart broken and be surprised. So I always think it's probably my fault is like whenever I do these stories, if it goes really well, I always actually believe that, wow, I made a new friend, man. I'm friends with these people. And I've done that when I was 22 and I'm now 47 and, I, and it's, I still do it, you know, and I'm just aware at another level that, that this is a job a lot of times. But, um, you know, when you're meeting somebody for all the people he's met, you know, when you're meeting somebody like Mick Jagger, he's meeting just you at that moment in his life, you are in his life and he is in your life and it's one-on-one -on -one for whatever short time that is. So it is kind of filling his entire screen, if that makes sense. So even though he's met a lot of people, right then it's you. And um, it's all he's doing. So there's that too. And uh, Talking about Mick, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I really um, was impressed by in, in reading your book, and I haven't really thought about it before, but like how there's a certain part of Mick Jagger that's inaccessible. Um, where it, you can't quite figure him out. <laughs> you know what I mean? There, there's something really en enigmatic about, about Mick. Um, have you figured him out at all? <laughs> like, like wh who is Mick Jagger? No, I, have, I really haven't figured him out. I mean, that's, what, that's his strength as sort of a pop star, which is um, that he has this idea. You know, we have this idea now with reality TV and everything that the key is to make yourself known. And for him, it's the opposite. And not just him. You see Bob Dylan do it. Prince do it. David Bowie did it. 
Michael Jackson to some extent did it and where he failed, that's where he failed. It's this idea that the person seems completely overexposed, yet at their core, there's something that remains totally hidden. There's something that's inscrutable that you could never know that maybe Keith Richards knows and maybe not even Keith Richards. You know, and the fact is that that makes him mysterious and keeps bringing you back because at the heart of it, you know, there's something that you will never know. It's like a math problem you can almost solve but can't solve because I think your tendency, and certainly as a writer but just as a fan, is to sort of peg somebody and go, okay, I know him. He's just like this other person and then move on. And with Jagger, he can't be pegged. You know, and there was a big revelatory moment to me. I was looking through one of my, an old interview of my own where I interviewed, I think, Gary Stromberg, who'd been a PR guy, and he'd set up, I think, Jagger to be on the cover of Life magazine in the 60s, which was a big deal. And he went and gave this great news to Jagger, and Jagger said, I don't want to do it. It's too much. You know, I don't want to give people the sense that they know too much about me, which is the exact opposite of what most people are trying to do when they're trying to become famous and sell a lot of records. And he had this instinct of withholding, you know, and it's very much different than the ethos of the moment. And it is cool in a way that people aren't cool anymore. So uh, it's an amazing feat, you know, and it, and I tried to figure him out as much as I could. But I have to admit that at the end of the day, what goes on in his head, I don't really understand. Whereas Keith Richards, I feel like I do understand. And it's the combination of the guy you can understand and the guy you'll never understand together that makes the stone one of the things that makes the stones such a powerful rock and roll band i love i love the the scene in the book where you uh go into a bar i think in connecticut and there's keith richards sitting there and he kind of nods to you and you say something to the effect of um or you write something to the effect that uh every every decision in your life has been justified by just you know being able to sharing the space with, with keith yeah i mean i once read this story a long time ago about a guy who I always stayed with me. It's a guy who was trying to make a plane from New York to D.C. And he basically boarded the plane just as they were shutting the door. And he realized the fact that he made it at the last possible minute blessed every decision he'd made before. You know, mm. like he got this cab instead of this cab. And they made a yellow light instead of having to wait. Because if anything had gone wrong or differently, he would have missed the plane. And um, I sort of feel like that when I see Keith, which is, you know, Keith Richards so such a special place in my life. And there's kind of something about him, even through all the drugs and everything that he seems very present in his life in an admirable way. And um, the fact uh, is that me and him are in the same place at the same time, living, you know, varieties of the same existence in this little bar in our town, uh, just sort of blesses everything that came before in the way of that guy that barely made the plane. Yeah. And I, 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 I promise I'll stop quoting directly from your book, but the one line that made me laugh out loud uh, when you talk about like it's sometimes when you're interacting with Keith, it's like the humor of his life and the insanity of his life is suddenly caught up with him and he'll just laugh for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> that was that well, was really well. This great. guy you're talking to him and he just starts to you know it's like he's sort of suddenly is outside himself looking down at how ridiculous his own <laughs> life is and he starts to laugh at it because it's funny. It's nuts. All yeah. these guys, you know, that's the one thing that I did get from Jagger that it's like. Everybody writes these books about the Rolling Stones, and I don't know the Beatles well enough. You probably know better than I do, but certainly the Rolling Stones, which is the Jagger said, listen, the thing that people miss is this stuff was funny. You know, yeah. we were laughing all the time in those early years. It was ridiculous what we were doing. I mean, the idea that in a few years they, they went from being little kids 
you know, listening to Chicago blues on the American Armed Forces radio and sending away like box tops to Chess Records to get singles and, you know, records by Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry. And then just a few years later, they're in the Chess studio uh, recording while being watched by Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters. And Jagger was so intimidated by that, he had to turn his back to them because he couldn't face them at the beginning. It's just, you know, it's like falling into the record you're listening to. I had a similar experience myself in reporting about them, but they had an even more intense experience in a huge leap across nations and across cultures that if you sit back, it's just, it's just funny. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. When you look at, when you consider it in some, um, I, this is the last question I'll ask you on this, on this track, but I, I'm curious, like, perhaps it's not important to you, but have you ever had a moment either with Mick or Keith where you expressed in some way, you know, your admiration for the music and what it's meant to you, or is it simply just not, not important for what you're trying to do? Absolutely. When I first met Keith and was interviewing him, that's where the title of the book comes from, I think, which is I started to try to explain to him how important the Rolling Stones were to me as a kid. The fact that in you know junior high talent shows, I actually dressed up as Keith and we played Rolling Stones songs. And the fact that basically when I first heard Honk, my favorite record before I heard Honky Tonk Woman was Rhinestone Cowboy. Glenn Campbell, which, yeah. Glenn Campbell. And that's a great song and everything, but somehow going from Rhinestone Cowboy to Honky Tonk Women for me was like going from being a kid to being some kind of a grown up, you know? And um, I tried to explain that to Keith Richards and he just, he was sort of bemused by it, you know? And that's when he said, what year were you born? And I said, 1968. Now, 1968, the Stones, some people would say were already past their prime, depending on what era you love most. And he just started to laugh. And he said, you know, you should be answering my questions because for you, the Rolling Stones were always there. And I don't know what's that like for you. There's always been the sun and the moon and the Rolling Stones. So that's the perspective of the book. And yes, I absolutely, you know, said that to them. Um, you don't want to say it too much because of the thing we talked about at the beginning, which is it turns you from sort of being a reporter when I was working on the stories and a collaborator when I was working with Jagger and what became vinyl into being um, a fan. Right. Yeah. Even in friendships, I'm sure you've had this experience um, where you have a friend who, uh, not to sound braggadocious, but a friend who like admires you a little too much and won't call you on your shit a little bit. Um, right. Yeah. Because they can't really, you know, you'll never be really close to them. So yeah, I understand. Well, I'll tell you something funny, which is somebody said to me, why did you never, because I know, know a lot of people that never even know that I ever even wrote a story about the Rolling Stones. And he said, why didn't you ever tell us about this? And I'm like, it never came up, you know? And then I remember going to Chicago right in the midst of doing all this stuff. And a friend of mine had gotten really great seats to see the Rolling Stones. And he's like in the third or the fourth row. He was talking about how great his seats were. And at this point, I had been traveling with the Stones backstage with them you know, um, watching them from the stage and then after shows, riding with them in their in their motorcade to the airport and flying on the plane with them. And he was going on and on about his seats and how great they were. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't say anything because I felt like if I said anything, I'd be like a dick. Yeah. You know, he was very happy about his seats and that was cool. And I don't want to be an asshole about it. And that's usually how it is. It's almost like the experience I had with the Rolling Stones is almost too powerful to talk about because it just made me sound like I was bragging. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to talk about, you know, watching show after show from the from the sideline, you know, right on the stage without sounding like, <laughs> especially in front of a Stones fan, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and also, it's almost like, 
it is like the song, you know, don't start me talking because it's like, I can't just tell you that I got to explain everything that happened to me. We don't have time for that. Yeah. You, uh, you said on, on Artie Lang's podcast who I just, I love Artie. Um, but you said that you could, you could write a travel book on the stones and I yeah. found, I found that really interesting. So what, what did you mean by that? You said that they had such great taste in places that they went. Yeah, well, the, the, the Rolling Stones, there's all, all different lenses through which to look at them. One is just through their taste, because they have great taste. So the band starts with the idea that they these are the guys that were into the coolest music and the most obscure music and found a way to listen to it. And they copied the best music. You know, if you're going to everybody's going to copy something, try to copy the best stuff. And that's what they did. And that is the same with their taste in art, um, theater and places. So they always set themselves up in the best places in the world. And if and I and when I was writing this book, I wanted to see them in a lot of different ways and I wanted to go to the places that were important to them and I realized these are the best places in the world. They lived in the best places. It's not like you know whatever other band, you know, even Bob Dylan recording up in Woodstock. Woodstock's all right. Woodstock's not that great, you know. But the Rolling Stones were in Paris and they were in the south of France. And they were, uh, you know, in New York City and they were in the and they were in Jamaica. They were always in the best places. And I thought there this could be a travel book. You know, you could just go to the places that were key to the Rolling Stones and write about them. And you would have a guide to the most interesting places in the world to, um, you know, Marrakesh and Morocco and North Africa. And and you could just follow their trails and have probably the greatest vacation of your life. Yeah, it's almost too perfect that they moved around so much, right? A band called the Rolling Stones? Yeah. Well, they had to to some extent because they kept getting in trouble and they had to find places they could work. You know, I think they did. They went to this, you know, they went to the South. They were working in the Olympic studio in London happily and at their houses. And that's when they found out they had this huge tax bill they couldn't pay. And they had to leave England in order to pay their taxes because the tax rate was so high in England. And they became tax exiles. That's why exile in Main Street in the south of France. And then Keith's house in the south of France got raided. And there was a drug bust. And he couldn't go back to France. And he couldn't go back to England. And he had trouble in the United States. So they went to Jamaica. So it's a little bit like the Satchel Page thing. Don't look back. Something might be gaining on you. They were sort of chased all around the world. And it really, the, you're right. Like, you got to be careful when you choose your name, because maybe you're choosing your uh, fate, because they really did become these kind of itinerant, you know, um, wandering around musicians like they idolized when they were kids. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, in the south of France when they were recording Exile, which is my favorite Stones album. I've always just loved that album. And you actually broke into that house for a minute, right? Well, I didn't break into the house because then I'd probably be in jail. I just there's a, there's a, you can't. It's owned by it's a private house. There's no plaque or anything. But it's this place where the greatest rock and roll record was made. And more than I think and more than just that, it was a scene of it was almost like the center of the rock and roll universe for one summer, you know, um, uh, one summer at the beginning of the 1970s. And um, and I just felt like I wanted to get closer. So I just hopped the fence, which pissed off my cab driver very much and just kind of ran up to check it out as much as I could and then sort of got far enough and I felt very proud of myself because that's rock and roll but then I chickened out and retreated.
that house is just sitting there doing nothing, basically, right? Well, someone, some rich guy's presumably living in it and enjoying it with his family. Okay. You know, it's in a really beautiful place with this unbelievable view of, uh, of you know, the ocean and the bay and the Cape. And um, it's just one of the most beautiful places in the world. And it's just, like, like I said, like their taste. It's one of the places very, very rich people go. Another one, because you're mentioning it, would be, you know, Montauk, where Mick Jagger lived in Andy Warhol's house in Montauk. Now, Montauk now has become a super fashionable place, but it wasn't until just a few years ago. It was just a great place, too far for people to go to at the very tip of Long Island, the very edge of America, and they set up there too. So they always found places to bring themselves that were especially nice. Yeah. In the book you write, again, just to quote it again, you say, you say that the stones have grown beyond their ideal proportions and they've become too big for, their, for the good of their music. I, I was hoping you could expand on that. What, what exactly did you mean by that? Well, at the core of it all, in my opinion, the Rolling Stones are just the greatest bar band ever to exist and a great blues band that ultimately wrote their own blues covers. And those became the great Rolling Stones songs. And you go see them in these big arenas and it's really not the right habitat for that music. And when I was traveling with them before the Voodoo Lounge tour, they did sort of a surprise gig in a small bar in Toronto. And it was just a little stage I could see a bar band and there were the Rolling Stones playing to a few hundred people, a few hundred drunk people and playing late at night and playing their own songs, but then playing a bunch of covers. And you thought, oh, my God, so this is the Rolling Stones. This is why they're such a big deal. This is what people saw in 1964 in the Crawdaddy Club in London that made them all want to start rock and roll bands. This is what happens at midnight when Keith Richards sort of finds the perfect groove and Mick Jagger sort of stops dancing and just starts being a front man and a rock and roll singer. They're the greatest bar band in the world and nobody ever sees it because they see them in these huge arenas where everything is diffuse and everything's far away. And it's like watching a, you know, a football game. You're hundreds of yards away. You don't even know half the time if your team has even scored or the other team has scored. You're so far away. And um, I, I even asked Jagger, I said, why don't you guys play in these bars? Why don't you do a whole tour where you just play in bars? Because that's the Rolling Stones. When people complain that the Rolling Stones aren't that great anymore, I'm like, they're just as great as ever. You're just not seeing them where they're great, which is in a bar. And um, he just sort of said the demand is too much. You know, there's too many people who want tickets for us to play like that. But I always that was sort of a revelation to me because it was like, OK, so this is the energy that has carried them through 53 years. This incredible barroom rock and roll energy. In, in the book, you call arena rock an abomination. Uh, which I, I don't think you're wrong there, but why? You, you just think that rock and roll is not designed for arenas and, and large auditoriums, period, or, or what? I don't. I think it becomes something else. You know, that's why they have to have the giant stage and the cherry picker and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is utterly beside the point. And honestly, I don't care. It's just the music and the songs. And for me, when I was a little kid, the first shows I saw were great. The first two concerts I saw were Springsteen, and the Stones in short succession, both at Rosemont Horizon, which is uh, out near O'Hare Airport in Chicago, where DePaul plays basketball. And it's, I don't know how many people it seats, probably around 35 or 40,000. So it's not like Soldier Field, where I've also seen them, which is now, well, now Soldier Field is smaller, but it used to be like 60, 70,000 people. And um, they were great shows and everything, but I went to school in New Orleans. And I'd see local bands like Dash Rip Rock and uh, 
other bands like the Pogues were big at that time and the Neville Brothers play in Tipitina's or play in Carrollton Station. And you're like, okay, this is what rock and roll is. It's not, you know, people with the numbered seats with a letter and a number and, you know, uh, guards, ushers walking into your thing and you sitting like hundreds of feet away and looking down on top. It's being mashed up in the front of the stage and um, being it's as much about the crowd as the band. The band gets the crowd going and the crowd gets the band going and everybody's jammed in together. And when it really, really works, it's a transcendent, almost religious experience. And it's not even about knowing the words to every song or any of that. That's all the arena rock stuff. It's about just the, the feeling of the music passing through you in a little tiny space jammed together with other people. And that can't happen in an arena. And so to me, the, what you have in an arena is a reinvention of rock and roll that's almost like a, a facsimile of the real thing. And um, that's why it's an abomination. It's an abomination because it's almost the real thing and it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. And for people that, people that don't know the real thing and they think this is the real thing, they completely miss the point. So that's an abomination. Abomination isn't something that's completely different. It's like something that makes you think you know the truth when you don't. Right. I mean, I, you know, reading reading your book again, just to, to go a little further in this train of thought, um, it, it's really sad to, to read about the deterioration of Mick and Keith's friendship. And you get the sense that, that the Rolling Stones, they're a corporation now. Um, they're not, you know, so much a band. And obviously, you know better than I do, but it, it sort of feels like that. And I, I was watching some of the videos um, of Mick and Keith on their YouTube page after reading your book and it was kind of like, are they acting or like, you know, we as fans, like we want to believe that they're buddies, you know, we want to believe that they hang out and they, maybe they still get into some trouble sometimes. And it, it, I got the sense from your book that it, it's, it's not really that, that way. So I guess what I want to ask you is like, where did things go so wrong? I know that's a big story, but where did things go so wrong? And, and do you think that there's, there's some semblance of warmth, warmth and, and connection there? I think that they're like brothers in that they love each other, but they don't like each other. You know what I mean? And the way you could find that out is if you, Keith Richards could say the most terrible things about Mick Jagger, which he did in his book, Life. <laughs> yes, he did. Right. But if you sit down with Keith and start criticizing Mick, like the hair on the back of his neck will stand up and he will just instinctively fight you, mm -hmm. you know? And that's what it's like with me and my own brother, you know? And and one of the things you asked what I loved about the Rolling Stones at the beginning, and I gave you one answer. Another answer is that they were like a gang and the leaders were Mick and Keith. They were the Glimmer Twins at the center of this gang, the Blood Brothers leaning together. And we imagined sort of living together, getting into trouble together, drinking together, getting fucked up together, the whole thing. And um, to get there and to find out that that wasn't the case, that these guys had been like that once upon a time, but they'd gotten old and they'd grown apart. And they were forced to sort of live a pantomime of a relationship that had once been real because that's what people are paying for. They're paying for Mick and Keith as Butch and Sundance. And that's what they have to go out and deliver. And that's acting, like you said. And that's not authentic. And the whole thing about this music, the reason why people were drawn to it in the first place is because it is authentic. So that's also an abomination, you know, and it's a shock for me was for me when I was a young writer to go realize that this thing wasn't real, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, now what it's like right now at exactly this moment, I don't know. And maybe it got better. It's hard to believe it got better after life. And because it seemed like after I was with him, Keith wrote life and it got worse or at least came out into the open. So 
Um, but I do think that if you look at a lot of rock bands, there is this tension between usually the lead singer and the lead and the guitar player. And, and it's a, like, it's almost what makes the band interesting too, which is there's kind of rival camps and there's this kind of feud. And if it can be bottled up, it can provide you a lot of power. If it explodes, it ends the band. And now it should have ended the Rolling Stones. Like it ended the Beatles and like it ended the Kinks in a way, or a lot of other groups, but it didn't because uh, Mick Jagger always had his eye in the big picture, was always able to forgive or at least forget, move on and realize that the Rolling Stones were bigger than any of its members. And so they're the band that continues. One thing I really wanted to know is I, I know you've been working on this book in one way or another for a long time now, but what, what did you learn as you were actually sitting down and putting this together and maybe doing more research? What did you learn that surprised you as you put this book together? Well, I guess, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff you figure out, people don't realize, like when you write a thing like this, there's the, the subject matter, but then there's the writing. And in a weird way, the real subject of a book is the writing. You know what I mean? Although if you're not a writer, maybe you won't get that and you won't even believe that, but that's the truth. And a lot of the stuff you figure out, you figure out while you're actually writing. I don't know why. I think it's like a di when you're when you're writing, a different part of your brain is accessed somehow. Absolutely. And yeah, and I think they've even shown that on MRI machines and stuff. But um, so what was interesting to me, I feel like I made a lot of connections that were that are new. And part of that, it's because I have distance on this story, both in time and the age I am and when I came to them. And um, I think what a lot of things surprised me, the Mick and Keith relationship obviously surprised me, but that surprised me before. I think what surprised me was the extent to which the Rolling Stones were really built in a negative space opened up by the Beatles, you know, and that that created a kind of logic that led to a kind of tragedy because the Rolling Stones couldn't be the Beatles because the Beatles already existed. So the Rolling Stones had to be the opposite of the Beatles. They had to be like Pepsi to Coke. And there was a space there and there was a race for it uh, with a bunch of different bands, the Kinks, the Who, who was it going to be? And ultimately, because of the success of Satisfaction, it was going to be the Beatles and the Stones and not the Beatles and the Who, you know, or the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five or something. And... The, the negative space opened up was, as Keith Richards said, well, that when we got there, the Beatles were wearing the white hats. And what did that leave for us? So Rolling Stone song had to not just be this great blues song, but had to also be a song that kind of was the opposite of the Beatles. So when Jagger and Richards started writing, they didn't quite get it. And it took Lennon and McCartney to kind of write the first Rolling Stone song, which is I Want to Be Your Man. And what happened is, is they started writing to their brand, which was the opposite of the Beatles. And you go from that straight to like play with fire, paint it black. The whole idea that Mick Jagger's kind of Lucifer, making them working with Aleister Crowley and the movie performance and the idea of sort of the dark arts all the way up to sympathy for the devil. And then it kind of leads them inevitably to Altamont, where for years Mick Jagger's sort of been pretending to be the devil. And then he throws a big party at the end of the 60s and the real devil shows up. And that kind of ends the Rolling Stones. And to me, when writing the book, I sort of said, what is the, the end of the Rolling Stones? They're continuing to play. They had great records, you know, 77. They had Some Girls and Tattoo You was a great record in its way. But really, as an avant-garde concern, breaking new ground and doing something different, that kind of ended 
in my mind, at Altamont. And that's why Exile on Main Street is so great. It's the culmination and the hangover of everything that came before. And the reason why it ended is because this entire brand they'd set up in the early 60s as the sort of were the devil came to an end in 69 when they confronted the real devil, which was Sonny Barger and the Hells Angels. Yeah, I mean, that that's just a fascinating story, which we could get, get into quite deeply if we had more time. But but yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot about Altamont from from reading this book. Another thing I wanted to ask you is, so you talk in the book about getting some pretty nasty feedback from Mick Jagger's publicist at one point uh, back in the 90s when you wrote a, a story that, that uh, they felt was, was really favorable to, to Keith. Have you had any feedback either from the Stones themselves or any like Stones people um, from this book? Yeah, I have. And the feedback... Not from them directly, but from their people. And their people, you know, they have people like most of us don't, you know. And um, it's been, at first, it's been very, very good, very positive, and very warm, you know. Except at first, when the book was first getting publicity, because there's an excerpt in Vanity Fair, it was picked up in the British tabloids as this sort of devastating account in which Mick Jagger is described as a monster and all this kind of crazy stuff, which I didn't see the book at all. I mean, I see it as ultimately the book that really makes the case for Mick Jagger and why he's done the way he's done and why he's the guy who kept the Rolling Stones going. But of course, it's good and bad, because if it's going to be a good book, it's got to tell everything and not everything's not really good. So at first, they were kind of, why did you do this? I'm like, just read the book. You know, Mm. don't read the tabloids. They're like, well, how do you explain the tabloids? I'm like, they're your tabloids. I don't understand them at all. I mean, I don't understand the British tabloids. I understand more about it, which is it's sort of driven by Twitter, everything's driven by Twitter. So it's not, it, everything gets front loaded in the worst possible, strongest language possible. And if you sit back and watch Twitter, you know that, that that's how it works. But to have it happen to something you, you've worked on is always shocking. And, um, but it's happened to me before and I'm sure it'll happen to me again. But the short answer is the feedback I've gotten has been good. And not just from them, but, you know, all the other people around them. Um, over the years, who sort of maybe feel like this story's been told, but it's not really been told with any kind of perspective. Well, that's good. So no angry messages from Mick Jagger's publicist. That's uh, that's a plus. The guy who was Mick Jagger's publicist then, it's interesting because what you're referring to is he called up after I wrote the story in Rolling Stone and he said he'd gone through and counted and I forget the number, but he said, like, you mentioned Keith 47 times and Mick 37, 36 times. You <laughs> called the road on the road with the Rolling Stones, but that's really wrong. You should have called it, I love Keith Richard and want to have his baby. Yeah. Now, what's funny about that is he also didn't refer to Keith as Keith Richards. He referred to them as Keith Richard, which Keith legally changed his name to at some point and then legally changed it back. So he went from Keith Richards to Keith Richard to Keith Richards. So it was almost like a little making fun of Keith, even oh, in that interesting. thing. Interesting. But later on, no one's picked up on that, but that's what he was doing. And later on, I became friends with that guy and I'm fr- and who said that. And, you know, I realized, of course, he was just doing his job. And it wasn't about chastising me so much. It was about, it's like a brushback pitch in baseball. It was like setting me up for the next thing I wrote, you know. So the next time I wrote, I would have that in mind and I would try to focus it more in a more balanced way or focus it more on Jagger. And it was after that story came out that I wound up working with Jagger on vinyl. So obviously he wasn't pissed off about it. It was just that's how they do business. That's how they manage reporters. 
That's some Jedi mind publicist tricks right there. Yeah, absolutely. That's impressive. So to, to play us out, um, you talk about this a little in the book, but but for the audience who hasn't read the book, what's your favorite Stone song and why? Uh, my favorite Stone song is um, uh, Wild Horses. And that's, first of all, just because I love the song. and But also the reason is because um, if you watch the movie Gimme, uh, Gimme Shelter, the Albert Maisel's movie, you can see them actually making that song, compose, uh, you know, recording it in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And then you're, there's this amazing thing where after they recorded it, they sit back and they listen to a playback of it. And now as somebody who writes pretty much all the time, I know that there's a thing in your head and then you try to get it on the page. And I imagine the process is very similar with creating a song. Whereas while you're writing the thing, you think you're getting it and you think you're the greatest writer in the world. And then when you go back and listen, read it, you realize I haven't gotten it. I missed it again, man. It's like, I thought I had it. I thought it's, I always think of it's like trying to catch a lightning bug in a bottle. I thought I had it. And then I looked in the bottle and it wasn't there. And every now and then, like there's a sentence or a paragraph where you think I got it. And it's such a satisfying feeling and it almost never, ever happens. And with the stones, you can see when they're listening to wild horses, they had this sound in their head and they got it. And the, the look on their faces is such deep satisfaction that you realize all the stuff, the soap opera stuff, the wives, the drugs, all that's just a distraction from what really matters, which is just that moment when they try to get the thing down and they get it. And it's just this deeply satisfying thing. And when I hear that song, I love the song, but I also hear a moment where the Rolling Stones were exactly what they wanted to be. That's perfect. Rich Cohen, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. All right, great talking to you. Thank you. You know I can't let you Slide through my hands Well, there you have it. There's my conversation with Rich Cohen and Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones, which is probably in my top five Stone songs uh, as well. One of uh, one of my favorites for sure. Quick reminder that if you'd like to learn more about the Stones and Rich's excellent book, The Sun, the Moon, and the Rolling Stones, um, please go to travelsandmusic.com slash rolling dash stones where you can find show notes and a link to rich's website and his book and everything we talked about and listened to in today's episode another quick reminder before i let you go is that if you're enjoying this show and you'd like me to keep making new episodes please go to itunes and make sure you subscribe and leave a rating and a review they really help a lot and they help to spread the word and let other people know that uh, this show is worth listening to So once again, my name is Zachary Stockhill. Thank you, as always, for spending part of your day with me today. And a reminder that life is short, so if you don't have it in your collection already, be sure to go out and pick up the Rolling Stones album, Exile on Main Street, which is my favorite Stones album and just essential listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll talk to you again next week.